Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. If you were given an opportunity to meet any person in the, what you could call the first Christmas story, who might be that one that you might would want to meet? Uh, maybe some of you are brave enough, you'd want to meet Herod, the wicked king of Israel, who was insanely jealous over this baby that would rival his throne, uh, the magi or the wise men, we might call them. By the way, and I think I maybe say this every year, but and I usually try to listen to it every year. I just enjoy it so much. But if you want to really have just something that will bless you, uh, and maybe I'll put it on the, somewhere, but you can just probably Google it. Listen to John MacArthur's message on who the magi were. It will bless you, and you'll learn something. So it's hard to get blessed and learn something at the same time, but uh, there you go. But I, I, love, I love that. It uh, just gives you an insight biblically of who those wise men were. The innkeeper, poor guy, forever is going to be, you know, I mean, you know, f- uh, frantic innkeeper, no room. The shepherds, um, Anna, who was called a prophetess, uh, Simeon, we talked about Simeon last week, who held the baby Jesus in his arms and blessed the parents and said, now I'm ready, I'm ready to go. I've seen the consolation of Israel. And then there's Mary. We usually hear quite a lot about Mary. Luke uh, is more detailed in the story of Mary than any of the other gospel writers. And uh, I, I certainly would love to talk with Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would be a wonderful conversation to have, especially, you know, what was he like when he was five and six, you know? I mean, uh, but there's the forgotten man of Christmas, the forgotten man, and that's Joseph. Uh, Matthew wrote uh, a little bit of his story, and we'll look at some brief things about that, but I call him the forgotten man of Christmas Because we hear so much, and there's so much written about Mary. There's so much music. Mary, did you know? Well, why can't somebody write, Joseph, did you know? And what did you do when you knew? I mean, you know, you could, somebody needs to, was it Mark Lowry that wrote that? Uh, Somebody needs to give him a tip, like he needs one. Um, But I call him the forgotten man. That's not an exaggeration. There's not a lot in the Bible about this man Joseph, there's not probably a lot of as many sermons about uh, Joseph as there are about others. Um, really, just nothing, not a lot about Joseph at all. If uh, I have uh, several hymnals, and uh, and I love I love old hymns, even though I can't carry a tune across the the hallway, but I love hymns, and I love sometimes using a hymnal as a devotional. Uh, just some of the words and love those. But if you were to search, you're not going to find any hymns about Joseph. You may find, you know, seven to ten or so about Mary or some reference. The closest is the one that we sing at Christmas, Angels We Have Heard on High. There's a line in there, See within a manger lay Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, Mary, 
Joseph, lend your aid, sing with us Messiah's birth. But a lot of the hymnals delete that, that line. So the poor guy can't even get a hymn, right? Uh, but we're going to look at Joseph a little bit this morning, even though there's not a lot written about him. But what is uh, written about him in the Word of God gives us a lot of, uh, I think, insight into who Joseph is. And this morning, I want you to look with me, and we're going to look at five qualities of Jesus' earthly, can we say stepfather? Because that's the role he played. He was a stepfather. He wasn't the biological father, uh, and uh, we understand that. But focusing on Joseph, and even though I'm going to focus this morning primarily on fathers, because that's who Joseph was, uh, these things apply to everybody. They're not exclusively for uh, dads or men in that, in that sense. Uh, godly people, uh, looking at some of these qualities and convictions that we see in Joseph's, Joseph's life are not exclusively just for men and dads. So in Matthew chapter 1, we're not going to read it like sometimes we do at the beginning, but we'll walk through it. And I want to look at uh, Joseph being, title of the message is, uh, Joseph, a profile in courage. Uh, in 1955-56, John F. Kennedy was somewhat of an obscure congressman from Massachusetts, and he wrote a best-selling book called Profiles in Courage, in which he profiled about you know eight or ten or so different Americans and how they were courageous in uh, their life, and it became a bestseller and certainly kind of began one of the pieces that launched him into uh, national uh, identity, and maybe four or five years later, he was elected president in 1960. So today, we're going to look at Joseph. I don't think Joseph was in that book, but he's in the book, and that's, that's what counts, and he is a profile in courage, and I want to, as I said, I want to uh, primarily address uh, fathers uh, as, and men in particular, and uh, you know what? That's okay. In this culture, in which we are somewhat, uh, you know, that men can't be addressed as men and women can't be addressed as women. We talk about men and women in this church. Uh, Sherry was telling me the other day that she was filling out something for Watson Clinic and there was a drop-down menu of about, I don't know, several, trying to determine, for her to determine what gender she was. Now, we laugh, but that's the insanity that the culture that screams 30 times a day on the news, we've got to believe the science, cannot even tell you the science of a male and a female. Right? That's not political. That's, just, that's how insane our culture is. All right. That was free. You won't be charged for that little diatribe. But, um, and I would even say, ladies, these are qualities of those of you who are here and you're single, single again. I would think that these qualities that we'll talk about today uh, are qualities that you would want in a future husband, if that is in God's providence for your life, future uh, stepfather, uh, father for your children uh, to make notes. So you should be really taking notes, all right? 
uh, and uh, guarantee it better than you'd get on eHarmony. But here we go, five ways that we want to look at Joseph and a profile of courage. And I want to look at Joseph as an example of what men of biblical convictions look like. Can we do that this morning? Is it okay to talk to men today? We don't do that often, but these, again, are principles that apply to everybody. But we're going to address men and dads uh, also in, in part of this, since Joseph, that was his claim to fame, being a father or a stepfather of Christ. Notice, first of all, as we look at Joseph as this example, is that first of all, the first principle I would have you look at is men of conviction have moral integrity. Men of conviction have moral integrity. In Matthew 1.19, it reads, And her husband Joseph, uh, and I have the, the New American Standard up there, uh, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. The ESV that I use primarily says being a just man, but I, prefer, I like it, the New American Standard. It says being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, disgrace her planned to send her away secretly. And so that just, again, indicates that Joseph, the Bible says, he was a righteous man. He was a just man. He was a man who followed God's moral law. He was a man who was in step with the plans and purposes and the, 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 the structure of uh, God's uh, expression in Israel of the law in that day and time. He uh, followed the civil laws, the ceremonial laws. He was in good standing uh, with the, the synagogue. He was called a righteous man, and uh, he didn't believe in situation ethics. Situation ethics uh, actually was a particular uh, title of a book uh, that a Dr. Joseph Flesher, I think he was professor at University of Virginia that somewhere, I believe, in the 60s actually wrote. He was a philosophy. I think he was also some kind of medical person, but actually wrote a book called Situation Ethics, and it simply meant that your situation will determine the ethics, meaning uh, there is no moral continuity of right and wrong, but if your situation means that you need to lie, cheat, steal, and he would even say murder, then there are certain situations that you could justify those things. Well, that really is kind of the mindset of our culture, isn't it? Um, Not just situation ethics, but even just relative ethics that there is no standard. Well, Joseph was somebody who was a righteous man. He obeyed the law. He didn't fit it to his little whims and, uh, and the passing uh, whatever cultural uh, whims of his, his society. But the Bible makes it clear that he was a man of moral integrity. And, and so the situation is here in the context, Joseph, uh, he, it is, he is uh, engaged to use a modern Western term that we would be familiar with. He was engaged to be married to Mary. That's, that's the context of what's going on here. And uh, those of us who have uh, been engaged and, you know, know what that uh, wonderful feeling and the, all the joys and everything with that. And so I'm sure Joseph was no different than any other of us who been engaged and married and uh, having someone special to agree to be your spouse and marriage. And he was caught up with those same feelings uh, that when we fall in love, and, and, and the engagement in Jewish culture was more than just the way we think of engagement in our Western society. It was a little bit more uh, formalized. According to the Jewish custom, 
an engagement or betrothal, which was more accurate, the period was uh, about one year in Jewish custom uh, before the marriage could be consummated. Uh, The period was taken much more uh, seriously, legally, morally than, again, as our engagements are. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, who is one of the great scholars of uh, the New Testament, says that the couple in this tradition could not terminate the engagement except by a bill of divorce. So even though the marriage wasn't consummated in a, in a formal wedding, once the betrothal and the engagement, our term, uh, was made, that in the eyes of the law, they were in essence legally almost as if they were married, and that's how that relationship was seen in a legal sense. And so the only way that that engagement could be broken is not by her taking off the ring and throwing it at him in the middle of Olive Garden or something like that. It, it, <laughs> um, that, that didn't happen, but you're just saying that's not, that's not a confession. But anyway, um, <laughs> it was Chili's. No, um, but, uh, <laughs> but um, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> they were committed in marriage just as if they were married, quote, unquote. You, okay, you get the idea. So it's in that context that when we talk about Joseph, We talk about Joseph, and of course the news is that he discovered what? He discovered that Mary was pregnant, and it wasn't his. It wasn't his child. It wasn't his baby. They didn't need to drive down I-4 and catch one of those 800 numbers of paternity tests. Uh, You know, he knew it wasn't his, that the marriage wasn't. He was a morally righteous man, and, and the marriage had not been consummated. So there was a great dilemma that he was in. You know, we kind of read that, guys, and we kind of read it and become so familiar with it, and I don't think we quite grasp what a traumatic event that must have been in Joseph's life, as well as Mary's, but we're talking about Joseph here. Uh, We know that Mary's pregnancy uh, is the miraculous event of what we, you know, call the virgin birth. Uh, If you want a reference to that, you remember that, and it won't be on the screen, but in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26 through 33, that the angel Gabriel uh, presented himself and told her all these wonderful things that would take place. And in verse 34, she said to him, how will this be for I am a virgin. She had not had any sexual relations with a man. So Joseph, only conclusion that Joseph would normally come to would be what? That she was unfaithful, right? Uh, (laughs) I mean, uh, that thought had to be of great pain, that this woman that he was in love with, that he was, uh, you know, imagining a life and a family that they would have. And, and as far as he knew and understood, this was a woman that was a woman of purity. He was a righteous man. And then to find out that she was pregnant with a child, he understood that God took marriage seriously. He understood that 
God wanted moral purity. And I think what makes this a such a wonderful story, a true story, is what Joseph did. Now, now since he had not consummated their marriage in a sexual uh, relationship that followed marriage, and since he wanted and desired a morally pure wife as a righteous man, a righteous Jewish man, he decided to break the engagement. Uh, I think it's interesting that his default was to do the right thing, as he understood it. That was his default. He loved God. He wanted to honor God. And so in Matthew 1, verse 18, the verse previous to the one we read, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed there, or and again, may your virgins might modernize it, engagement, but betrothed to Joseph before they came together. That's a nice PG way of saying they... Uh, had not had any uh, sexual union. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from where? The Holy Spirit. And so we see that Joseph is a man, is a, is a man of an example of moral conviction. And here was a situation that we see that he chose uh, to seek to do the right thing. Some, sometimes uh, we don't think about doing the right thing until we're confronted in a situation. The time of moral integrity is before you get in the situation. You already know what you will do. You already know what if your boss wants you to uh, shade the receipts because that's kind of a little backhanded way of beating taxes, of getting an extra uh, income under the table, and everybody does it, but you don't. One of the families here last night, by the way, had the Angel Tree families, and uh, it was just a great, great evening. And, but one of the uh, men uh, with his children who were here, who uh, his wife is incarcerated, uh, told, uh, told you, I believe, that, that he uh, had to leave a job because they wanted him to do something he considered unethical, and he lost his job in that process. It's easy uh, to bend our convictions to fit the moment in the situation. What's tough is to hold to our convictions uh, when the situation will be costly, right? That's when it, that's when it gets the rub. Uh, but in our day where the mantra is for somebody to discover your truth, which is a ridiculous statement. I don't think you have your truth as far as what a foot and an inch and, you know, is. I mean, I think there's a standard that 12 inches is one foot, right? That, we kind of know that. Or we'd have some really ridiculous and unsafe homes that were being built if every con con uh, construction uh, person built them according to their truth, right? Now, you may have hired some guy that did something according to his truth, but that's different, all right? But you hear that. Do you hear that? You know, you hear, well, they discovered my truth. They'll say my truth. That's just kind of, a, that's kind of just injected into the, 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 the stream of culture, meaning that as though there are multiple truths and you just find your truth of what works for you. And, and that's kind of that relativism. And, and so Joseph was not one who was bent he was a man of moral conviction. He wasn't swayed by what was the, the pattern. 
And in Romans 12, uh, Paul would remind all of us to not be conformed. One version I like says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not be conformed or squeezed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need men. We need husbands. We need dads of moral convictions now more than ever. There's never been an easy time. I mean, we can start with Adam, right? Perfect environment. You think, you know, if I just could live somewhere else, I wouldn't be having all these issues. Adam, how'd that work out? Was he not in a perfect environment, right? But biblical convictions are always going to be tested by godly, against godly men and women. I, uh, there is a town uh, in Virginia near where I live, kind of on the uh, going west. Uh, it's called Franklin, Virginia. You've probably heard of Franklin, Virginia, uh, down in the Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Hampton, Suffolk, and Franklin is a small town. Well, Franklin, you would know when you were coming into Franklin by the smell before you saw any signs. And Franklin had a large, I'm trying to remember the company, but they had a very large paper mill. And you would smell Franklin before you ever got to Franklin. And I remember, uh, have a good friend who pastors and has a church in Franklin and grew up in Franklin. And if you talk to them and you say, how do you stand that smell? You know what they say? I don't know what you're talking about. Smells fine to me. That's what sin does in a culture. You become so inoculated by the sin, after a while, we are like the folks we've been studying Jeremiah on Wednesday. In Jeremiah 6.15, it talks about uh, how God's people were no longer ashamed over their sin. And Jeremiah 6.15 says they no longer knew how to blush at sin. Everything smells just fine. Secondly, Joseph is an example of men, for men and dads that he was that men of conviction fear God more than public opinion. In Matthew 1 20 and verse 21, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you, I like that dad had this responsibility, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And if you drop down to verse 24, and of course the story is that Joseph was troubled, but all of this is the angel revealing to this. And it says at the end of this dream, when Joseph woke up, woke from sleep, verse 24, 
he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. After the angel explained this unique circumstance and said, do not fear, well, the only reason do not fear is there because he was afraid. You know, remember in Jeremiah 1 and his calling, the Lord told Jeremiah in his calling, don't be afraid of the people. You're like, whoa, what are you talking about? Well, we learned from Jeremiah, he had a reason to be afraid of the people. Well, Joseph went ahead based upon this, this dream of this angel of God speaking in this manner at this time, and he went ahead and took his wife, uh, took Mary as his wife in verse 24. He took her as his wife. And I just kind of imagine what the conversation might have been like with the boys down at the Galilee Carpenters Union, Right? Because, you know, a pregnant woman is a bit hard to conceal. And word gets out quick. The gossip of uh, not just men. You know, men are gossipers too, ladies, right? Sometimes they just do it in a lot more subtle way. They're always women blame, but I, I, you know. But the gossip, the word that got out, I mean... You know, did you hear about Joseph? You know, he's the guy that we had made us that dining room table. Did you hear about that, the woman Mary? Did you hear that she's pregnant and they're not even married yet? I mean, the whispers, and, and I don't even think that's his baby. And, and then she's going around saying that God impregnated her by the Holy Spirit. Let's be honest. Let's take, let's pull the halo off. That's crazy, right? I mean, that is just, that's what makes it so wonderful because there's no human explanation to it. That here, this man Joseph, think about this, guys, to ra- that, that to raise his son Jesus, and we know roughly that the last time, and we'll look at this a little later just quickly, but the last mention of Joseph was when they took, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple and roughly, or maybe about 12 years of age, and that's the last reference. Remember when they left and they were down the road, what, a day or so, and they were like, wait a minute, where's, where's Jesus, right? Doesn't that, give you a, doesn't that help you, parents? Just, doesn't that just give you a little comfort, you know? <laughs> uh, but, it, but that's the last mention of Joseph that we have. So many, and even at his crucifixion, it was only Mary, his mother, who was there witnessing the death and the murder of her child. Remember when he told John, we, we talked about that earlier this year in the seven last words of, of Christ. And so, uh, but, but, to, but God chose Joseph for at least the first 12 years of his life to raise this boy, Jesus, God chose him. And I love the fact that God the Father picked a man, a dad, who feared God enough that he knew he would stand with God against public opinion. We need dads like that. We need men like that that aren't going to be swayed. Your kids need a dad like that. Well, my kids are grown. It doesn't matter. They still need dad to be someone who is going to fear God, who's going to listen to God more than public opinion, more than the cultural trends, more than, well, that's 
what everybody's doing. It doesn't matter what everybody's doing. I mean, here, Joseph had a tremendous burden to bear, but he did it because he knew that this was God's purpose for his life. He understood that this is what God wanted. He was a man who feared God more than public opinion. And again, our kids need dads who do that. And I'm not talking about some rigid, militaristic machoism. That's done more harm. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about tender warriors. I'm talking about, I'm talking about men who love God and are willing to obey God, even when they might not be the most popular guy in the house. Listen, I'm a father first to my kids, and I'm a friend second. I told my children, I said, I'm not your buddy. I'm your father. Now, those aren't mutually exclusive. I'm probably more, you know, I mean, we've always been pals and friends. But I'm, my first default is I'm your father. And I'm accountable before God as your father first. And some parents are fearful of their children because they may not be popular and they may not like them. But you know what? Ultimately, when it's said and done, I'm interested in what God thinks of me. Does that mean I'm always 100%? No. I can think more of what I did wrong than what I did right. But you know, in most cases that I can recall, when I blew it, and God says, you know what? You're harder on them than, you are, than I am on you. And I went and I said, you know what? Dad was wrong. Will you forgive me? And most of the time they're like, oh, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, they kind of gave you a break, right? Does that mean we still can do what? No, no. I was just wrong in the way, <laughs> you know. You get the idea? I mean, we need dads to stand and say, I'm going to obey God first. Fear God more than public opinion. Always do the right thing and leave the consequences to God, I believe. Thirdly, Joseph is an example to us dads and men that thirdly, men of conviction develop a habit of obedience. I love this about Joseph. In verse 24, look, I just want you to, I'm going to hit several verses. In verse 24, when Joseph woke from, the, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Over in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14, And he, Joseph, rose and took the child. Drop down to verse 20 and 21. Once they were in Egypt, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, Joseph arose, and he took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. Verse 22, but when he heard that uh, Archelaus, I should have pronounced that beforehand. Uh, Your guess is as good as mine. Archelaus, okay, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. What do you notice in all those situations? 
is that every time God told him to do something, what did he do? He did it. He did it. Men of conviction develop a habit of obedience. He responded with instant, unquestioning obedience. I'm not saying he may have not just, but he did what God told him to do. We need, we need dads, men, we need people that are people of conviction that have a habit, have a predisposition to obey God. I mean, flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. You know, you think, I mean, if you're like me, you're like, move to Egypt? What are you talking about? That's a foreign country, God. I don't even have a passport. They speak a different language down there. How am I going to make a living? How can I get established in my business? It's a hassle for a family to move. Do you know how much a U-Haul costs, God? And besides, you can't get a one-way rental to Egypt. I mean, and you think, well, you know what? These aren't big deals. Really, it's not a big deal. Take Mary as your wife. Let's just stop there. Is that a big deal? That was a big deal. Move to Egypt at a time when people are out hunting you and looking to kill you. Is that a big deal? That's a big deal. Move back to Palestine, then move to Galilee. I mean, he had a habit. He had a predisposition to obey God. That never changes. That never gets outdated to obey God. And, you know, we can say, well, I would obey God, you know, and we think of some big situation. And most of the time, the challenge for my obedience isn't in the big, big things that we kind of become over, you know, dramatic about. It's in the little things. It's like when you might be in the store at Target, Walmart, Publix. Got to give a tip to Publix, right? And the checker misses an item in the checkout line and you get out to your car in the parking lot and you discover they made a mistake. Do you think, oh man, can you believe? They didn't even, they didn't even check this. This is, must be a blessing of God, right? Is that your response? <laughs> or do you go to the hassle and the expense of going back and making it right. You know, your kids watch your example. Now, some of you aren't old enough to remember this, but some of us will. But I remember there used to be an anti-smoking commercial on when I was little, and it was a father and son. They would be out playing at the park and doing different things, and then they sat by the tree, and it was kind of the kid wanted to do everything Dad was doing. When dad was working on a car, he would pretend he was working. It was just quick little scenarios like that. And then they kind of sat by a tree, um, and dad took out a pack of cigarettes and lit up one and put them down there, and it just ended with the little boy picking up the pack of cigarettes and acting like he wanted to be like dad. You know, kids do more of what they see than a lot of times what they hear. I remember one time uh, my Son John, they weren't too, too young, but it's for either he or I, I don't remember what the situation was. We needed one of the, one of the we were in the Target somewhere, and, and I needed to buy one of those little caps, you know, that they put on the valve of your uh, tire. Well, like pack, I mean, just, you know, what, I don't know, doll, I mean, just not. And he went over to the bikes and just took one off of there and said, Here. 
I said, I'm not taking that. <laughs> well, they got more. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they can get them by the billions if they, I'm not doing that, right? Fourthly, men of conviction develop godly habits of worship. We're going to travel over to Luke. I may just make a note of it, but it'll be on the screen for your convenience. Luke chapter 2, men of conviction develop godly habits of worship. In Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, mom and dad, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, uh, who is first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And this is where they met Simeon. We talked about that last week. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. I mentioned those are sacrifices a poor person would bring. They could afford it. A pigeon and turtle doves. In verse 41, we learn that they had a custom of going to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. In verse 41 of Luke 2, it says, now his parents together went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. If you skip over a little ahead, uh, chapter 4, verse 16 of Luke, we see something in Luke chapter 4, 16 that we pull into this. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The new, uh, in, new uh, century version, I'm not sure if I put that up there, verse 16, said that Jesus, there it is, Jesus traveled to Nazareth, same verse, where he had grown up, on the, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, what? As he always did. What's the point? The point is, is that men of conviction develop godly habits of worship. What do you see here? You see that Jesus, as was his habit, as was his custom, went uh, and followed the, not just the weekly worship, but the customs of worship of Israel. Now, humanly speaking, and this is always where we have to, you know, we kind of have this tension because the Bible is clear and teaches about Jesus being God incarnate, fully God. He's not half God and half man, fully God and fully man. He, didn't, he wasn't less God. It was just his humanity that was added to his nature. But so we say, humanly speaking, where do you suppose that Jesus learned that habit? Well, I don't think it's too far off to suggest that maybe it was mom and dad, and more specifically, that the father took leadership in the home with the family. Every family has ha uh, habits and customs. And uh, around Christmas, there's a lot, probably some traditions and things that you enjoy around Christmas. And they're just things that you remember doing when you were little. And I didn't grow up with a lot of those things. I mean, our custom were not things that we wanted to repeat, okay, all right? Um, they, weren't, they weren't good customs. And so, you know, that's why there's always a bit of attention, and I know some of you have told me the same thing. At Christmas, you have to, you know, you kind of have to work your way into Christmas because it isn't filled with a lot of nice memories of sitting around the piano and mom playing Christmas songs and drinking, 
you know, eggnog and that kind of thing and, and watching, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and, you know, just all those wonderful things. And I'm envious of, of those of you who have that, but some of us didn't have that. And if you don't have those, start now, all right? Quit griping about it. Start now, right? Start doing some of those things. But here's my point is that we all have habits and customs that we develop as a family, things that may not be real formalized, but there are things that we do that our kids see. Uh, I remember the decision to go to church on Sunday morning began on Saturday night. My dad would shine his shoes. He would put his clothes out. He would have his tithe check on the desk. You see, he was intentional with his family and a decision of what was going to be done. It wasn't waking up on Sunday morning and deciding, do we feel like going to church or not today? That's the way our culture is. That's the way even good church folks are. It's just not a big priority. There was habits, and sometimes these habits, you know, just happen whether we understand it or not. Kind of in a lighter note, I... I think I've told this before. I remember reading a, about a woman who was, and it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, and she was going to bake a family ham, and she was in the kitchen, and she cut one end of the ham off and cut the other end of the ham off, put it in the pan. The husband says, why do you do that? I see you do that every year. You cut one end off and cut the other end, and you put it in the pan. And she goes, I don't know. That was just the way that I saw my mom do it. Said, let me call her. Said, I have no idea. Called her mom, asked her mom. Said, Mom, why do you always, when we make would make that ham at Thanksgiving and Christmas, you'd cut one end off, cut the other? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. Why don't you call your grandmother? Called her grandmother. Grandma, why does mom and why do I? I mean, why do we cut one end of the ham off and the other hand, other ham off? And, and before we bake it, is there something that it, you know, cooks in the juices and the, you know, is there some? She says, no, when your grandfather and I were first married, we were too poor and the pan was too small to fit, uh, you know, the ham was too big to fit in the pan, so I had to cut one end off and cut the other end off to get it in the pan to fit. You see, we do a lot of things and we don't know why we do it. We do that in church. We just, why do you do it that way? I don't know. It's just the way we always do it. Well, there are habits. I love this quote from Stephen Covey, the author of uh, the helpful business book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talking about habits and the, the power of developing consistent habits. He says, and you've heard this probably, sow a thought, S-O-W, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow Plant a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. You see, Joseph and Mary had the custom of worshiping God regularly as a family. It was their habit to worship God. It was just what they did, and certainly we see that exemplified in Jesus' life. And I think that certainly it was something that, he, that Joseph passed on to his stepson Jesus, as well as the other children that he and Mary had. So when God chose a man, when God chose a man to raise his son, he picked a man of conviction, 
as seen in his moral integrity. He picked a man who feared God more than people. He picked a man who had a habit of obedience, and he also had godly habits of worship. But the last principle I would show you, let me just, can I go back and say one thing here before I forget? Let me just want to make this clear because I think this is important. And I've seen this pastorally in a negative sense. Um, And I, I, I alluded to it. You see, we're not talking about men who just, again, create this rigid, legalistic, militaristic, line in the sand obedience to their families. You people know, and I know, uh, folks who that has been a negative. I'm talking about Christian people who love Jesus, but they have approached their application of godly principles in the home in a way that was all law and no grace, right? Hello, right? Yes, no, I mean, just something foreign you've just heard. Uh, and that can have as much a negative on children as the other way. And that's why this last principle, I think, is so important so that talking about uh, dads, that we don't, we don't miss it here. And that's why number five, this last, is that men of conviction are compassionate to others. You see, I think compassionate becomes like the glue that holds all these things together. It isn't just how, you know, loud you yell. It isn't just the tone of your voice. It isn't just how you slam the fork on the table to get your way. You know, men, honestly, sometimes we are the biggest babies around. Let's be honest, right? But compassion... Jesus was a man of compassion. And if you remember nothing else, don't forget that Joseph was marked by a compassion for others. Humanly speaking, where do you suppose, again, I'm just talking about the the humanity aspect of raising Jesus. You know, you realize if God could have, I mean, God did, not could have, but I mean, just as miraculous as the virgin birth was, I suppose, you know, if God just wanted to drop Jesus at 30 years of age on a mountain and him just walk off, he could have done that too, right? Right? But in God's plan, he chose to do it this way for a lot of, you know, theological reason, but just he chose to do it this way that Jesus had the exposure of this earthly father, and I think there was an aspect that perhaps, again, not taking anything away from who Jesus, his deity, but also I think that Joseph could have been that human source. Can we say it that way for Jesus' example of compassion? Because the whole thing of what we're talking about here back in Matthew is that Joseph had a compassionate heart. He did not, what does it say? He had two alternatives, according to Matthew. If you go back to Matthew. I mean, when he discovered that Mary was pregnant with child, he had two options under the law. He had two options. He could have instituted a lawsuit against Mary because of her adultery. That was something he could have done. And I don't think her defense of 
the Holy Spirit would have been much of a defense in the court, right? He could have instituted a lawsuit, and in fact, if they wanted to obey the letter of the law, and there were some that were prone to do that, we know later even in Jesus' ministry, if they obeyed the letter of the law, the punishment for, adulter- for an adulterous woman was what? Stoned to death, killed. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, wanting to obey the law, he could have done this lawsuit, but the problem is, is it would have exposed Mary to her supposed sin as he thought it. It would have exposed her. It would have opened her up to public disgrace and ridicule. Or, or he had another alternative, and this is kind of where he was going. He could have handed her a bill of divorcement, of divorce. Again, remember this betrothal had a legal binding on it, different than our engagement. And he could have dismissed her privately without a lot of public fanfare. That was, and that was the option that he was seeking because he did not want to disgrace Mary. Why? Because he was compassionate. Was he bothered that she was potentially an adulterer? Yeah, I'm sure he was. Was he hurt? Was he grieved? Was he offended? Was he embarrassed? Yes, 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 yes. But there was something in his godly character that he was compassionate. And it says in verse 19 of Matthew 1, and I have the New Living Translation there, it says, Joseph, to whom, he was, that, to whom she was engaged, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. He chose the latter than to make it a court, public court issue. There was something, maybe unlike some of us, there wasn't wasn't like, you know what, she's going to pay for this. I mean, he's a local businessman. He's known. And she's going to pay for this. Did he have friends? Maybe. I don't know. I'm just said, I can't, you're not going to let her get away with this, are you? You're not going to be able to show your face down at the Carpenters Union Hall again. I mean, they're going to mock you, ridicule. I mean, you're just, you got you to take a stand, buddy. Don't let her just walk all over. I mean, you can just hear it right now, right? But don't hold that he was a righteous man exclusively from being a compassionate man, compassionate man, because a real righteous man is a grace man. He's a compassionate man. To love mercy. To love mercy. How we need more of that. How I need more of that. Oh, I need more of it, but I need to be a dispenser more of it. You know, in my younger, legalistic, know-it-all years, when I had all the answers, I go back and look at some of those old sermons. I'm like, how did I even hold a job in that church? Let me preach this nonsense. And I think there's something that does happen as we get older. And hopefully it's the grace of God marinates our 
our life. Not that, and see, there's, you know, again, it doesn't mean we just, and sometimes that, some people, it just, they, they fall into the trap where they begin to just, you know, where there's compromise. I don't think that means that we have to give up our convictions. But we realize that this standard that we are so quick to hold others to, we fall so woefully short. And outside and without the grace and mercy of God that has sustained me for almost 59 years, how I need to show that to my children, how I need to show that to my grandchildren, how I need to show it to other people when their life falls apart and they do things that are inconsistent and they make, am I holding them to some artificial standard that I cannot even And so we see that Joseph was a man of compassion. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13? Love suffers long. Some of you need to hear that this year because you see family members that are poking their head above the water and it brings back sometimes some emotions and feelings. And you need to remember love suffers long and is kind be kind. Love is what? Love suffers long. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, men. It does not seek its own way. It does not rejoice in iniquity. Some people you don't care for, do you quietly kind of have to fight rejoicing in their fall? That's wrong. But what does it do? It rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's kind of love, even those those who have hurt us and wounded us deeply. Does that mean you let them walk all over you? No. No, it doesn't say that. Compassionate men are men of conviction. You know, we give attention to Mary, and she deserves lots of attention, but Joseph, he gets some credit too, doesn't he? He had a tough road. And he was a model, not just to men, but we're talking to men. He's a, he was a model of a man of faith, Struggled with his doubts. You think Christians don't doubt? He doubted. He had to have a special delivery of angel Gabriel to help his doubts. Listen, Joseph, think about it. He was tough, guys, when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been harsh. He was thoughtful when he could have been hasty. He was trusting in God when he could have just doubted and gave in to his impulses. And he was temperate. He was disciplined when he could have indulged himself in his emotions. You know, as I read those, I thought, God, I want those things to be said about my life. I want them to be said about my life. 